Today's readings are Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, and Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. They can be found on pages 1081 and 1089 of the Bible's next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And from Colossians, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Karen. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we look at this message, as we look at this, this collection of scripture passages, we come into this place from different kinds of backgrounds and different kinds of stories and places. <clears throat> Most of us come out of a season that is defined by uh, cultural and family tradition holidays. And so that has meant something to us. We come out of different kinds of experiences from the last two weeks. And whether we have been reintroduced to old joys or old sorrows, or whether we have come face to face with um, new challenges, new struggles, or new experiences of delight and joy, whatever the case may be, we come into this place looking in some way, looking for something to be real from you for you to be real. And we come all from just the, the mess of our lives. We don't always want to admit it, but we're more broken than we care to be, than we want others to know. And we look to this story, the story of grace found in the Bible. We look for it to speak into our lives, and the truth is it does, and it tells us that while we are a mess, you have moved towards us. While we are broken, you have loved us more than we imagined. So as we listen to these words and as we come with really a lot of baggage coming into a new year and coming out of the holidays, would you speak into our lives in a way that goes far beyond any of the actual words 
that can be recorded and that we'll be, we'll be able to listen to on a podcast later in the week. But something else happens amidst all of it that is from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> when Oprah Winfrey was closing out her TV show that she did for so many years, I don't know, 25 years or something like that, she had a farewell address during her final program that included a lot of themes that are important to Oprah and that she was putting forward and hoping that her listeners would take them with her. And, um, and so she, at one point, this is what she said. She wanted people to, to, to be changed by her show, and she says this, And that is what I want for all of you and hope that you will take from this show, to live from the heart of yourself. And everybody just kind of hears that and says, yes, that sounds good. Um, someone else, to get at the same concept, here's a quote from somebody who wrote a book in 1976 called Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. It's Gail Shahi. She says, as we reach midlife in the middle 30s or early 40s, we are not prepared for the idea that time can run out on us or for the startling truth that if we don't hurry to pursue our own definition of a meaningful existence, life can become a repetition of trivial maintenance duties. What am I getting at? I know you say, oh, well, you know, live from yourself. Oh, don't waste your life. You know, pursue your own definition of a meaningful existence. This is, this is, these are a couple of quotes that hit at the, one of the cultural threads that we're going to deal with today from a biblical perspective. And what do I mean by a cultural thread? Well, um, another word for them is uh, <clears throat> narratives of late modernity. What are the narratives that our, cultural, our culture just kind of has out there that we, we know, but we may not even define them, we may not think much about them? A, uh, a study in 1950s Chicago, a sociological study by Alan Ehrenholt, um, came up with this conclusion. He writes, Most of us in America believe a few simple propositions that seem so clear and self-evident they scarcely need to be said. Choice is a good thing in life. Authority is inherently suspect. Nobody should have the right to tell others what to do or think or how to behave. Sin isn't personal. Human beings are creatures of the society they live in. These are, these are powerful ideas. And they all have the ring of truth. Um, Tim Keller writes about this, and a lot of what I'm about to kind of set the stage with comes from Tim Keller's book on preaching where he highlights five of these cultural narratives. And this is what he says. Let me just, let me just put it another way in his words. These five narratives function as self-evident truths, usually expressed in simple slogans that appear to need no justification once stated. Keep your religious views private. I am free to do what I wish as long as I don't hurt anyone else. What right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them? Or, you have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says. Or, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. He calls these self-evident, apparently self-evident truths, or um, we give them so little thought, he calls them unthoughts. And so they just exist, we buy into them, and they are both under-evaluated but also overestimated. 
and in a sense absolutized for their reliability. Um, And they become driving driving forces in our life. Um, Without giving much thought to them, they direct big decisions and big things that we that we um, big directions that we go in our life. Um, One philosopher, Charles Taylor, writes a lot about this. He's got a book called A Secular Age, and he, and he, and he argues a lot of things about this and, and brings out a lot of truth in this that Tim Keller then, as I'm reading, he brings it out as well. One of the points he makes is a lot of these threads of culture that define us without us realizing them, they have their source in a Christian worldview because that's what our, our worldview in Western society has been influenced by. But the latest stage of that is to remove them from those underpinnings, the Christian worldview underpinnings, and to expect that they can, they can exist by themselves unrooted. And he kind of makes the point that's impossible. He also makes the point that they are within themselves, as they're absolutized, they, they end up coming off to us as logical, um, you know, trustworthy, and reasonable, Um, as if there's no faith involved in these, but he makes the point that they're actually just a new set of beliefs, and he puts it this way. He argues that secular people are not more objective, but instead have just embraced a new constructed web of alternative beliefs about the nature of things that are not self-evident at all. They are no more empirically provable than any other religious beliefs. They require enormous leaps of faith and are subject to their own array of serious problems and objections. All right. So that sets the stage. Uh, because we're going to give some thought this week and next week to two of these cultural narratives. We're going to give some thought to something that we normally don't give thought to. We're going to try to explore, try to look into how they affect us and what Scripture tells us about them. And then you notice right away, Ephesians chapter 4, the first text that Karen read, says in verse 23, <clears throat> and the second text had this theme as well, that we are made new in the attitude, you are made new in the attitude of your minds. That in the realm of, of your mind and of knowledge is a realm which eventually helps you discover the Christian path. Let me put it this way. When you, when you become a Christian... You will, in, you will inherently, because you are just a product of our culture and all the milieu and the narratives that are surrounding us, you will, have, you will still have most of those narratives all intact. There may be something about Jesus now that has become central, forgiveness, grace. Something has grabbed you, something has shifted, and, and this has begun. And yet, most of these other things are intact. And you'll still, there will be many statements that are said, and you'll say, yes, of course. And you'll, imagine, you'll say, I never even imagined that my Christian faith, this new commitment that I have, will actually affect or change these things, but lo and behold, over time, as you are made new in the attitude of your minds, little by little, you will think it out. You will tease it out through your experiences and, and, and just thinking about things and seeing things through new eyes of faith, and you'll see, wait a second, I'm not, I don't believe that anymore. I, I actually am shifting on how I think about these different things. Does that make sense? So your mind and knowledge becomes crucial to thinking out the Christian faith, to giving thought to these unthoughts. So particularly today, we want to look at the first thread, the identity narrative. The identity narrative. This is what Tim Keller says. Let me, let me just um, find this a second here. 
the identity narrative I'm also calling the narrative of self-definition. And Tim Keller calls it, let's see if I can find it, find this, uh, this page. I have too many pages here today, so I'm, there we go. He calls it the, um, the narrative of the sovereign self. He says, Western secular, secularism has reversed an ancient approach. Our identity now is discovered not outside in our duties or roles in society, but only inside in our desires and dreams. Okay, this is going to sound very familiar to you. In this view, our self-worth comes from the dignity we bestow on ourselves as we express and fulfill our desires, regardless of what our community might say. We must be ourselves regardless of social expectations. In our society's main heroic narrative is that of the individual standing up and being true to him or herself over society's opposition. Okay, so that's the sovereign self. Um, you, might, you might hear that and say, yeah, that, I, I, I agree with that. And in many ways, that's natural for us to hear that and say, yeah, I don't, that sounds about right. The gospel, as it creeps into your life and as it creeps into your sense of how you get your identity and what is the best kind of identity construction for you, it'll start to erode and eat, and, and eat holes into that, into that philosophy. It'll start to show you that that is, a belief, that is actually a set of beliefs that the, your Christian identity will start to encroach upon. Or to put it this way, and this would be like our, if you're going to say this is our big idea today, this is our theme today that we're going to go at now, is that the gospel relieves you, actually, of the poisonous burden of self-definition. Our culture says define yourself, figure yourself out, you're sovereign to figure out your own path, who you are, what life is for you. The gospel relieves you of that poisonous burden of self-definition. Let me, just put, let me just break this up into three short parts. What is, what is self-definition? What are we talking about? What is the self-definition? Oprah says, how does she say it? I want everyone to live from the heart of yourself. That's how she puts it. This other person that I quoted, Gail Shahi, says that you better, if, you, if we don't hurry to pursue our own definition of a meaningful existence, then life's going to pass you by with all these boring maintenance duties. Self-definition. You've got to figure it out. You've got to define, you gotta define you know, who you are. You've seen Frozen, right? I've talked about this before. Elsa, when she sings that song, let it go. You know, let the storm rage on. I don't care. I'm going to be myself. I'm going to build my ice palace. How does she say it in the song? I don't care what they're going to say. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm free. Right? Don't tempt me to sing it with the actual... With the actual tune. You define yourself. You follow your heart. If you, follow, if you dig deep, you'll find your true desires. Um, there's a funny Saturday Night Live skit called The Millennials, where they make fun of this new generation that we call the Millennials, and, and Miley Cyrus plays one of the characters, and, and she actually says, somebody basically says, I have a crush on you, and, she, and you know, they're all texting and they're all on their phones while they talk to each other. And, um, and she replies, I haven't even decided how I identify. Um, and you kind of say, okay, yeah, they're poking fun. They're poking fun at something there, aren't they? Because that's what you do. You figure out. You decide what your identity is, who you are, what you're going to be. So we are taught inherently, taught to be suspicious of outside authorities, about people who tell you 
what you're supposed to be, about traditions or about expectations from the clan or the tribe or the group or the people that you spent maybe Christmas and New Year's with. We're taught to inherently um, be suspicious of those expectations of ourselves because the true ones we'll find within, we'll find deep within ourselves. How deep does this go? How much does this shape us and our culture? Well, let me, let me uh, see if I can find, find another little quote here amidst my papers that I thought I had all laid out and numbered, and then, and then now they're not. <clears throat> here it is. Tim Keller says, No longer do we think that we have the power merely to discover moral reality and truth. We think we have the power to actually create it. In uh, a Supreme Court decision, a famous line goes this way, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of things, you have the right to define the biggest things that there are to define. You define. This is the identity narrative. This is the sovereign self-narrative that the gospel questions. This is, you define your existence. And we're saying that the gospel relieves you of the poisonous burden of this. So how is it a poisonous burden? Let's look at that. How is this identity narrative a poisonous burden? Well, I would say it's poisonous with, both within and without. It's poisonous from within and it's poisonous from without. On the one hand, it's poisonous from the outside because if you're supposed to follow your heart, um, if you're supposed to dig deep and find your true desires and that will be your true self, one of the things that we do, we don't even realize we do this, is that there, you're supposed to have the freedom yourself to just go with whatever desires you have, but there's actually culturally acceptable definitions of ones that you have to sift out and leave, on the, leave off the table of options. So, so when we say, you know, follow your heart and um, dig deep into your desires, there's actually ones that, that are not acceptable. There are actually ones culturally that we have taken off the table. Um, and every once in a while you'll be in an interesting conversation. Sorry, I can't think of a specific example, but you'll be in a, a conversation where you'll see this at play where someone is just saying, this is just right to me, I'm following my heart. And yet at the same time, they're talking about something that has become maybe culturally taboo. And so, that, so then we have a sort of a difficult thing to figure out. Well, yeah, follow your heart, but also you're saying something else that's, that's taboo in our culture. So on the one hand, our culture from the outside already kind of gives us a sifting of our desires and tells us which ones are right and which ones are wrong. Um, now the other thing, so, and this just, this just, models, this just um, models what is said in verse 24 of Ephesians 4. To put on, um, or no, let me, let me go back to verse 22. And you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And you'll find the exact same thread and the same language in the Colossians passage that we read. This is, a, this is one of the bases for understanding the gospel and understanding the Christian faith, is that even in your deepest parts, even in your deepest desires, there are flaws and they are wayward, even so much to say they're poisonous, they're corrupted. So, so that I don't even necessarily need the culture around me to blame for getting in the business of my desires and, and telling me which ones are wrong and right. I, I'm pretty bad at it myself. And full disclosure, 
I'm really talking first person here as well, because if I listen to my heart, if I listen to my heart, my heart usually tells me to serve myself. My heart usually tells me to serve my ego, to serve my greed, to serve my pleasure, to serve um, my pride. This is this is this is this brings me to the point where I, I say if 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 I pay close atten- close enough attention to my heart and my deepest desires, if I observe them even for a minute, I'll say, well, you say follow my heart. My heart is actually showing me, don't follow your heart. Somebody please come and save me from following my heart. Um, it's broken. It's a broken heart. And let me just give a few, let me make a quick flyby on a few other ways that this is a poisonous burden, that this identity narrative is a poisonous burden. It can be a crushing weight in your life. You can get to a point in your life, you know, one of those mile markers, like, hey, it's 40th birthday or 50th or something, some place in your life that you get to, and you kind of evaluate and look at your life. How crushing is it if you get to that point and you look at your life and, and it isn't? Maybe what you'd hoped and dreamed. And what has the message been that you've been holding to, that your culture tells you that is right, is that that is up to you. You have to create that. That canvas was blank, and if it doesn't look beautiful to you by the time you get there, it's your fault. You have no one to blame but yourself. You have not created the life that would be beautiful to you at this stage. That's crushing. It's a crushing weight. Another thing about it is that, as I've already noted a little bit, it encourages you living for yourself, which I think is a, not only is a, will create an emptiness in your life, but it will create a spiritual atrophy. Um, your spiritual muscles that most need to be worked are worked in the process of letting go of yourself to serve others. And then last, just another quick flight. We're flying by here on why this, this identity narrative is a poisonous burden. Because of the instability of my own desires and your own desires. They're very unstable. If your current desires must be what drives the decision you make in this phase of your life, you are in for a very unstable life. Because they change. One thing now, another thing five years from now, another thing ten years from now. If you follow this to its logical endpoint, a person living this way for decades on end leaves behind them a trail of collateral damage, hurt, wounds, sadness, anger. And yet, culturally speaking, if you were to describe how you've lived your life, you might get a thumbs up. You've done it. Good job. So, have I convinced you? It's a poisonous burden, this cultural narrative of the sovereign self. So then let's, let's ask the next question. How does the gospel relieve you of it? This is the final question. In some ways, I wish, I wish we could tease this out on its own for this whole time, but I've used up a lot of the time. So it'll be brief. How does the gospel relieve you of this identity narrative? Another way of asking it is to say, how are you going to avoid ending up with a eulogy Someday, because we, we all die. Sorry to bring that up. How are you going to avoid ending up with a eulogy that says, you know, she accomplished her bucket list 
And she made sure the needs of her family and friends never got in the way of her dreams. How are you going to be saved of that being your, your eulogy? Or even, I think an even bigger issue is, how is our world going to be saved from being filled with people who live that way? Right? Of people who are always following their desires and defining their own identity. Well, Ephesians gets at it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 says, To put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, the Christian faith tells you that, that the premise is off, that you, don't, you, you actually don't create a satisfying identity for yourself. You can't. The identity that we're all chasing after, the kind, of, the kind of satisfying identity that you look at that canvas, you know, towards the end of your life and you say, I've, I've, I've done it, that, that is actually not in, your, in the cards for you to be able to do. You don't have the power. And the Christian faith comes to you and says, notice the wording, you put on a new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You put something on that was created for you. It was created for you, it was accomplished for you, it was set up for you. The hard work is done. You just have to put it on. It's like clothes that, you know, you thought, you thought for sure you were going to have to make them yourself, design them, uh, sew them, do, put all the work in them. They're ma- all you have to do, they're just, in, they're just handed to you. You just have to put them on, that's all. This is, the, this is the common language of Christian identity in the Bible. There is something definitive and firm and good, and it's presented to you. Please put it on. Please wear this new identity. Well, how, you say? Like, how does that, how does that work? How are those clothes made? How is that even something that makes any sense for me? Well, Jesus, Jesus comes as sort of like the new person in our place. Jesus uh, you, know, you know, there was this original creation as the Bible story goes and, and, and mankind was created, humankind was created. As, as flaws entered, as the fall happened, there's this need for creation to be remade, for humans to be remade. Jesus comes sort of as that one that enters in, stands in for us and is remade, is created on our behalf and stands in for us. So Jesus achieves, in a sense, this new created identity that is for you, that you're powerless to achieve, and it's put on. My favorite identity um, chapter in the Bible is um, the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus is baptized, and it's kind of confusing to wonder, and, and it's, nobody gives a fully satisfying explanation of Jesus being baptized and how, that, how to understand that, how that relates to our baptism. But Jesus is Jesus is baptized, and as he's coming up out of the water, the Gospels tell us, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son, in him I am well pleased. Some, trans, some of the versions have it in first person. You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. What Christians believe is that because of what Jesus ends up doing, going the path of suffering, giving up all of his desires and praying a prayer, Lord, your will be done, not mine. That sounds very unlike our identity narrative. Jesus goes that route and gives up all, empties himself, so that we can have his identity. In other words, Jesus goes through the rest of his life after his baptism and takes on all the pain and suffering 
to save you from it and to give you instead that voice from heaven speaking over you for the rest of your life. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. You might have this feeling inside you when you hear that, um, like, I don't, I don't deserve that. That's not for me. That's, the, that's what's offered to you. That's the identity that's handed to you in the Christian faith. That's what it means to become a Christian, that you take, that's, that, you take that message now that's yours from the Father and you live under it as if it's true. I know a lot of us thought and a lot of people think about Christianity as um, if it's like clothes that you put on, that's just a bunch of, of new little tweaks to my behavior, right? The clothes that I put on are a little less swearing perhaps, a little less drinking perhaps, a little less of this over here, a little less of that over here. And that's putting on the new... I, no, it goes so much deeper than that. Some of those things might trickle out uh, and proceed from this base. But the basic thing is this. You are my beloved child. In you, I am well pleased. That's now true. It's like you've been adopted, and it's the most secure, legal adoption. No one can touch. No one can mess with. You have a new home. You have a new family. It's secure. It's final. It's finished. Last week, the question of the week was listed in the um, worship guide, and you could fill one out this week, too, if you want. There's a, a question of the week every week, and last week's question related to this message. And it was, how do you find the real you? Something like that. Um, and the answer, I have, I have it here. Somebody gave an answer um, that I just have to read because it says it very simply. Someone says, how do I discover the real me? By exploring interests, but also by studying God's word and learning what he says about me as a child of God. That's where all of this goes. I couldn't have said it more simply than that. By studying God's word and learning what he says about me as a child of God. Um, this becomes, uh, this new identity, you are a child of God, it's given to you, becomes something as of a tool to sift through now all those desires of your heart. Because they're, they don't magically switch and you don't magically know exactly what to do and know which desires to follow, which ones not to, which ones are corrupt and which ones are pure. But this identity helps you. So that you picture a Christian and, or growing as a Christian as a process of waking up every morning and saying, okay, now what is a child, what does it mean today as I go about this and that and the other? How will that be different because I'm a child of God? Or, or, or getting to the end of a year and looking to a new one and saying, okay, what's, what's my New Year's resolution? Maybe some of you have them already. I usually can't even think about resolutions till the end of January, so I, I just postpone it. I always start a month late. But if you do a resolution, how do you decide? I mean, you, you have a lot of desires, right? Oh, I wish, I, I desire this to be different this year. I desire that. Well, which ones do you follow? Which ones flow out of your identity that is given to you by the gospel? And which, which of them maybe you, you need to kind of put aside and not listen to? Well, you, you, you say, well, what does it mean that I am God's child? What does it mean that all my... All the things that I might strive for and think are really a big deal, all those deep inner needs are already actually met by my identity as Christ's child, as God's child through Christ. What, how does that start to shape and shift what I pour myself into and what I don't? Because let me tell you, and there, I mean, this is, this is pretty much it. I don't have any more amazing nuggets, but hopefully there's been one somewhere in here. But... What, what can actually happen is this. It, this, is, this is why Christian identity can, mis, can be so misunderstood. 
someone can be lifted up in the context of the gospel and Christian faith as look at this person, look at how they've lived, look at how strong their identity was, look how they gave themselves away for others. Look at the legacy of that that they've, that they've put. And someone over here, um, not familiar with the gospel, doesn't really get the Christian faith, will look at it and go, oh, how terrible, what an absolute waste of a life. They don't seem to ever have just stopped and dug deep and figured out who are they and just lived for that dream that they found deep inside themselves. Isn't it funny how the perspective can be so different? The gospel shifts it. And I, my prayer now as we, as we kind of lift this up to God is that God will help us to just incrementally absorb and, and make, make our own this new identity that comes to us through Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious God, thank you for um, challenging and difficult words. As we consider what it means to be um, children of God, may your Holy Spirit help us to know. As we have a chance in a few minutes to come forward to the table of uh, the Lord's Supper, or maybe as we sit in our seats, maybe we're not ready yet for that, but we're going to be sitting thinking about it. This is the family table, the table of grace, and you as our Father invite us forward always. We're, We're completely acceptable. It hinges not at all on anything we have done or will do. Will you help that gospel to seep in? There are cracks in our lives and some people's lives here today that are just have been reopened or have been underexplored. And I pray that this concept of your deep love for us that is given so freely may creep into those cracks and those crevices to bring new life, to um, feed us in all of our deepest hungers and to water us in all of our deepest thirsts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.